I know what some of you are thinking. This episode's about Doctor Who. You don't really consider yourself a fan, so you just might skip this episode. Well, do these names mean anything to you? Walt Simonson, Dave Gibbons, Dave Cockrum, Frank Giacoya, John Wagner, Paul Mills, and Mary Jo Duffy? Really? On Doctor Who? When do you stick around and find out? Welcome to another exciting episode of the Fire and Water Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag, and thanks to a little advice from my lawyer, I'm not going to be podcasting with Rob for a while. Well, at least until the trial's over. In the meantime, I've invited a very special guest to join me tonight, our buddy Siskoid from the network. How you doing, Siskoid? I'm doing well, and I'm very neutral in this war. <laughs> I will also be podcasting with Rob. We, we can't discuss this. No, I know. I no, mean, really. We need to just move on, seriously. Okay, the lawyer's sure. telling me just to keep going. So, anyway... Folks, I invited our good buddy Cisco here to discuss something that is near and dear to our hearts, something that we've got a real passion for, and we don't have a lot of opportunities to verbalize this and jibber-jabber about it, and that is Doctor Who. He and I have both been fans for a very, very long time and have been wanting to get on the on the podcasteries and chat about it, and this is our chance. Now, i got to say, there are a lot of places in the Internet that you can listen to about Doctor Who. I mean, there's a billion, billion podcasts, but I, I'm going to plug three particular ones I'd like to, if you don't mind. First off is a show called Who True Freaks, which is over the Two True Freaks Network. Uh, the show is probably on permanent hiatus or, or ended for now. It was an ensemble show with lots of different folks, but it was led by our good friend Sean Engel, who has now passed away, which is really the reason the show is kind of pod-faded, if you will. But uh, all the episodes are still out there on Two True Freaks. We talk about a lot of old classic Who stuff. Feel free to go check that out if you want some Doctor Who goodness. Another great Doctor Who podcast that's Friends of the Network is Straight Outta Gallifrey, hosted by Ashford and Josh. It's these little nice bite-sized episodes where they dive into a classic episode and talk about other Time Lords besides the Doctor. It's a lot of fun. Check it out, Straight Outta Gallifrey. And then finally, Doctor Who Panel to Panel. Now, this is a podcast I just found recently, and it is completely dedicated to the comic books and the comic strips of Doctor Who. They cover every range you can think of. They talk about the old strips, the new comics, the stuff from Titan. They have tons and tons and tons of creative interviews. I'm just now burning my way through the back catalog of those episodes and really loving it. So there are many, many places for you to get your Doctor Who fix online. And this is not intending to replace that, but just we had the need to talk about who. Now, before we get much further, we really do need to take a second to thank our sponsors, folks. The Firewater Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. What you got, Siskoid? Uh, well, I would recommend Doctor Who is a Forgotten, since we're talking about Doctor Who. This is a, uh, an oversized hardcover collection. Uh, it's about the 10th Doctor and Martha Jones, who find, find themselves into a museum, and then it's very strange where there's an exhibit about every past incarnation of the Doctor, so we get a chance to see a little bit of adventure from each of the uh, different uh, you know versions, if you will. It's uh, written by Tony Lee. Artist is Pia Guerra and various others to, to showcase the different eras. It's 160 pages. It was $24.99. The uh, in-stock trades price, $12.49. You save 50% on, uh, on that. It's, uh, it came out from IDW. 
That's a great one. And, you know, if I remember correctly, that was the first time IDW really delved into the past Doctors. Because at the point, at that time, they were doing stuff with David Tennant because he was the current Doctor. But that was the first time we really got to see the other Doctors. And, man, I love that miniseries. It is really, really good. Yeah, a lot of fun and uh, quite a few surprises going in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I brought to the table Doctor Who, Dave Gibbons Collection Trade Paperback. This collects uh, all the stories that Dave Gibbons did for Doctor Who Weekly. He is an amazing illustrator. You know him from Watchmen and a million other things. And he was the primary artist on the Doctor Who stories for a long, long time, doing a lot of the Tom Baker stuff and some of the Fifth Doctor stuff. And uh, this collects 372 pages of Dave Gibbons' Doctor Who goodness. So uh, writer Pat Mills, and along with other folks, again, arts by Dave Gibbons, normally retails for $29.99, and this is full color, but you get it for 50% off on In Stock Trains, so you can get it for $14.99. And I picked this particular trade because we're going to be talking about something that is reprinted in this trade. So if you're interested in what we talk about today, definitely check this out. Yeah, that's one of the places you can find it. For this and all your other trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. Got to give one more shout out, folks. This episode owes a huge debt of gratitude to our good buddy, podcasting luminary John Wilson. He helped us out to uh, make sure this episode got off the ground. You can find John on tons of podcasts, including the Amazing Spider-Man Classics, Giant Superman, where they talk about the DC Superman annuals and the Giants from the Silver Age, and he's covering tons of rebirth stuff over on the New 52 Adventures of Superman. Thank you, John. We sincerely appreciate your help. Now, Siskoid, since we're talking about Doctor Who, you know, you gotta do the typical thing that every nerd does when they meet each other at a Doctor Who convention or just find out, like, like today, I'm actually wearing a Doctor Who t-shirt, and sure enough, I got asked this next question. <laughs> who is your favorite Doctor? But to be fair, because I know it's impossible really to get it down to one, or at least keep your answer steady to one, I'm gonna give you an option of choosing three. Who are your three favorite actors to play the Doctor, and why? Uh, well, for me, my, my number one Doctor is always Sylvester McCoy. Not wow. because, well, he's not the, I mean, he's probably the weakest actor overall to have played the Doctor, but <gasps> his Doctor. No, oh, well, no, I mean, to be fair, but his Doctor is, the, the, you know, the mastermind, the champion of time. He built such a mystique. It's something that really started to happen midway through his run, but he became like the Doctor that is some kind of god. And we just don't know really what, what he's about. And I, I think that that mystery is basically pro propelled him through all the novels that, that followed in the, the, the long hiatus. Uh, so. Yeah, McCoy, that McCoy doctor remains my favorite, my most, you know, the, the one I like to revisit because there's so much going on behind the, what's really happening. Anyway, uh, so he's my number one. What? You, you don't have to, you don't have to shortchange it. I, I love him too. I think he's fantastic. I love the new adventures. I, I actually have a question mark umbrella that I got Sylvester McCoy to sign. I'm a huge fan of Sylvester McCoy. Didn't make my list, but I'm a huge fan of him. Okay. Bye. And then I, I, I don't necessarily put the rest in, uh, uh, an order, uh, because it keeps changing. That order keeps changing. You know, I've had, <laughs> I've had Hartnell up there. I've had Baker up there. I've had, they've all been pretty high up the top. Uh, Peter Capaldi's the present doctor. The present doctor always get, gets into my top three. Whoever's okay. the doctor now, at least until he wears out his welcome, is my, <laughs> one of my favorite doctors. Uh, it's only happened a couple times. You know, only Tom Baker and, uh, David Tennant really stayed too long. Maybe Pertwee, but, but usually, Eventually, no, I think eventually it was like time for another doctor in each in each of those cases. But Peter Capaldi, the who plays the sort of the student rather than the teacher, and now he's like the old rock star. I love that guy. Uh, and then Colin Baker right now is in my top three. What? 
Uh, which, this list is insanity, people. It's an unpopular opinion, but I was I was thinking, mm, do I put Hartnell again? Because you know, no, no, no. Colin Baker right now, uh, not. I mean, the TV in the on the TV show, the whole persona was problematic. But I, since then, I've listened to so many of his audios from Big Finish and the, the real humanity of his pretend that's behind, you know, the pretentious, overbearing personality. He softened over time. And on audio, you don't have to look at the costume. So he's, <laughs> he's really become he's the best of the audio doctors. And because I've been living with those audios a lot in the last, uh, you know, five to ten years, he's become one of my favorites. So that's the top three tonight. Ask me tomorrow night. Could be different. Well, and really, this this whole exercise is a Kobayashi Maru, if I can mix my genres, because you can't win. Because you're right. One minute you feel one way, the next minute you feel the next. You watch a, vi- a clip on YouTube of, you know, I don't know, something John Pertwee does, and you're like, oh, yeah, definitely Pertwee's in my top uh, top three. And it just it just changes constantly. And then you get into the nerd fighting, which is what we just happened here, where we're constantly going, how could you like that one the best? That's not possible. Now, none of yours made my top three. But I will tell you... In, uh, so you, you've got Rowan Atkinson... Yep. Peter Cushing and yep, exactly <laughs> <Is it>? right. <laughs> uh, you nailed every single one. Hugh Grant's the other one. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I will say you're right about Colin Baker on audio. He's absolutely fantastic. I you know I could talk for hours about Big Finish. I have I don't know well in excess of 300 different Big Finish stories, and uh, I, I started collecting when they first started coming out in '98, and didn't stop until 2013. And even then, I've been picking up more and more because David Escutera keeps telling me, sending me ads to go, "Oh, look what's coming out! Oh, I guess I have to buy that Fit Doctor box set now." Things like that. So it's, I love the way they developed the Colin Baker character on audio. He did a really good job. But my list, here we go, and this is going to offend some people in no particular order. Peter Davison is the first one I'm going to talk about. Now, while Tom Baker was my first doctor, and you know that old, old expression, you never forget your first doctor, as you talked about the current doctor a minute ago, who the current doctor is, has a special place in your heart. Well, Peter was the current doctor when I started watching, even though I started with Tom. And I couldn't help but get excited for this new doctor stories. I wanted to know where it was going, what was going to happen. So even today, the current doctor tends to carry some excitement for you, for me. And Peter Davison is, if I had to describe it best, he's my mac and cheese of Doctor Who. He's my comfort food. When I'm not feeling well or I'm down, I'm going to bust out, you know, Warriors of the Deep or Castrovalva or something along those lines. And I'm just going to watch that and, and sit back and feel better about myself. Sure. Uh, there is no wrong answer on this. You know, they're well, all, except, I, except I, for like, Colin Baker. But Oh, still. <laughs> still it's still a right answer. <laughs> Who else you got? Well, staying in the family, quite literally, is David Tennant. Absolutely love David Tennant's portrayal of the Doctor. He was manic. He was funny. The actor was just about my age. Uh, he was a fan growing up. Everything I want in the Doctor, he poured into that role. He lived that role. And I, and again, he at the time he was, you know, when he was the current Doctor, I was so invested in the new show. Absolutely loved it. I think he's fantastic. To this day, I still enjoy watching almost all of his episodes. Now you said he overstayed his welcome. I don't necessarily agree. I feel like perhaps in his case, the showrunner overstayed their welcome. I still love Russell T. Davies, and I will defend him more than most people. But I think that by the end, he had run out of stories is probably what happened there. And he, or, or he was just looking to make it too grand and epic. <clears throat> Capaldi, <clears throat> Moffat. <clears throat> anyway, um, <laughs> did I say that out loud? And my, my final one is Paul McGann. Now, I realize he only had one televised story and one little short, you know, uh, during the, the 50th anniversary, but his portrayal of the Doctor was brilliant. And his continued evolution on Big Finish audios, in the comics, in the books, during that, what was called the Wilderness Years, are those years from uh, anywhere from 1989 to 2005. 
is the period where Doctor Who was just going in every different direction. There was no show, but the books would go in one direction, the CDs, you know, the audios would go in another direction, then there's fan-produced audios, and there's comics, and sometimes they'd sync up, and sometimes they'd break continuity. It was crazy. Things were going nuts. And during those wilderness years, it was a period in history where you could actually buy and read and listen to everything related to Doctor Who that came out. And nowadays, that's compl- you can't even fathom being able to get your hands on every piece of Doctor Who merchandise nowadays or read everything. There's just so much out there. But back then, you could. And so during those wilderness years, during the Paul McGann you know, era when he was the Doctor, 96 to 2005, was probably when I was deepestly invested in Doctor Who. They thought the whole expanded universe, just my heart soars for the Paul McGann Doctor. So I, I even like his original look, which most people make fun of. So yeah, I think we have a similar list, but but completely different. <laughs> right. That makes we all picked actors that play the Doctor. There we go. Okay. <laughs> all right. So one more question for you here, Siskoid. Yes. What was your first exposure to Doctor Who in comic book or comic strip form? I think, and this is very, it's kind of vague, but I think it's actually Marvel premiere number 58, you know, the, like the second issue of yeah. reprinted, and we'll talk about these comics later. But I got it, I probably got it at Flea Market or something. Uh, it might have also been Doctor Who number one from Marvel, or maybe it was in the same lot of comics. I've since, you know, sampled a lot of old strips from every era really uh and there are some excellent dvd extras that talk up different doctors comics which uh so I, i've even refreshed my memory for tonight so not a clear memory i can't say i have a clear memory of my first doctor who in comics but um it's probably those marvel issues well i, I know it's, it has to be those marvel issues very similar in my case my first comic uh doctor who comic was marvel prepare number 60 which was the last issue in the Marvel premiere reprints, which, again, we're, in case it hasn't, I haven't made it obvious, we're going to be talking about some Doctor Who comic books tonight, folks. So, specifically Marvel premiere. So, anyway, issue 60 was the one I got. I probably got it in late 1983 or early 1984 as a back issue. I don't know exactly, because the, uh, they would have been, it would have, it was a pretty beat up copy even when I got it. And then, not too long after that, Doctor Who number one came out from Marvel, and I bought that off the shelf. And to me, I didn't perceive that there was a three-year gap between those, because I picked one up and then picked the other one not too long after that. And I absolutely fell in love with this era of Doctor Who comics. Now, I'm sort of sidestepping just because I want to address this, but the first Doctor Who magazine, or actually back then I guess it was Doctor Who Monthly, that I ever picked up uh, was during the summer of 1985. It was also a back issue, and it was number 81. And it was, uh, it was from 1983 and we, and it was the only Doctor Who monthly I had for the longest time. And it had one of the installments of the comic strip in there, which was Peter Davison comic with Gus as his companion. And the villains were the meddling monk and the ice warriors. It was called four dimensional vistas. And I just thought it was the coolest damn thing ever. I'm like, Oh my gosh, ice warriors, meddling monk, a new companion, Peter Davison. This is amazing. But I only had one segment like smack dab in the middle of it. And it drove me crazy. And it took me almost 25 years before I got to read that full story and it always hung over me wanting to know because the doctor who comic reprints from marvel stopped right before four dimensional vistas so it took me that long to finally track it down and read all of them and uh, now i feel whole and complete and can die <laughs> well don't uh, we, we I still need to talk about this yes and we got to get through the trial of rob but anyway um Siskoid, sure. why don't you take us on a little historical trip and tell us a little bit about the history of doctor who in comic strip form because it's got a sort of a surprising history if you, if you don't know all the ins and outs of it. yeah let's step into the tardis here uh <laughs> <laughs> doctor who comics were pretty much 
uh, inevitable as soon as, you know, the Daleks made it an overnight hit. Uh, so, uh, and the first strips, which featured like the first doctor and his two never before seen nor ever spoken of again, the grandchildren, uh, they're called, uh, John and Jillian. They appeared in a magazine called TV comic and TV comics important. It's gonna, it's gonna be the, the home of Doctor Who comics for, all, you know, at, at least a decade, more than a decade. Yeah. So they appeared in this magazine with other tie-ins to children's television shows of the time. Now, through the 60s, the first and second Doctor adventures were pretty similar. Variable art, childish stories, and pretty much an off-model character called Doctor Who, just like the, in the Cushing films. He was actually <laughs> called Doctor Who. Walking around with a bag of infinite holding, and uh, he's a lot more violent than you'd expect as well. He would like shoot enemies. and uh, it's, it's like people weren't really watching the show. We're, we're drawing these guys. <laughs> And it showed in the likenesses as well. Now, fact is, they didn't even use TV companions until like J- Jamie shows up finally in 1968. You know, wow. uh, four years in, four or five years in. Uh, after the second Doctor was exiled on Earth, for example, TV comic sent him there to have adventures as the second Doctor. He didn't transform into Pertwee. So while they were waiting for a new actor to be cast, instead of just you know showing like untold adventures in time and space, no, no, he was on Earth, stuck on Earth. So another like. Uh, decisions like this the quarks appeared a lot anyway the stories only really grew up when the third doctor came in and the strip moved over to a magazine called countdown which then changed its name to tv action and later back to tv comic but (laughs) yeah but they weren't anymore on model with the third doctor living in a cottage or sometimes getting help from his housekeeper and other companions you've never heard of it had it had like the brigadier without a mustache it had stuff like that Uh, (laughs) by the time the strip had moved to TV action, there was a noticeable boost in quality. Like the art was better, the likenesses were better, the stories were sharper. And meanwhile, I have to say that from 1965, the Daleks were also appearing uh, without the Doctor in full color comics in TV Century 21. Now, these are actually like better quality than what the Doctor was getting. Always a gorgeous strip. It chronicled the inner strife between factions on uh, Scaro or their war with uh, the Mechanoids. Or, and because you didn't have to to listen to their screechy voices, I think <laughs> sometimes more successful. Well, certainly more successful than a Dalek-only TV series would have been. You know, uh, some but, of the ideas that they introduced in the comic strips made it into the TV show eventually. Uh, yes, they did. Uh, so back to TV comic. But I'm talking about the Doctor mostly. Uh, back to TV comic. The fourth Doctor comes on the scene, uh, of course, and like others before him, he gets some dodgy likenesses. Very often, he looked like Pertwee. You know, just with, like, uh, darker hair. Uh, (laughs) And the the stories get weaker once again. At least he got to hang out with Sarah Jane Smith and Leela. They were in the strip sometimes, although at one point Sarah Jane Jane becomes some other character. It's just like the same character. They name her differently. It's very odd. Uh, But then in 1978, the publishing company, which is called Polystyle, heard that the rights were going to be handed over to Marvel U.K., and for the rest of the run, which was like 10 months, they pretty much phoned it in. They just superimposed the fourth Doctor on old second and third Doctor stories. 
Oh, really? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh no, it's uh, and those weren't very good stories to begin with. <laughs> so does that uh, mean the fourth Doctor got to hang out with Jillian and uh, whatever the other the grandson's no, name was? I don't think the those kids went away with when the Hartnell Doctor went away, so okay. they sort of avoided that. So it's mostly like adventures alone or adventures with a unit, you know, or you know that went on for a while uh, before the the launch of the of Doctor Who Weekly, which uh, is going to lead us into the comics we're looking at today. So. I, I hand it over to you, the, the rest of this history. <laughs> you, you take the console, my friend. Well, thank you. Uh, well, it's excited, so we need four more people to help us. But we're not going to go too far here. But So Doctor Who Weekly comes on the scene in October 1979, and they launched comic strips in there. And that includes a lot of Tom Baker adventures, a lot of backup stories. And it, the magazine itself was weekly for about a year, and then eventually became monthly. And it changed its name lots of times from Doctor Who Weekly to Doctor Who to Doctor Who Monthly to the official Doctor Who magazine to the Doctor Who magazine, and finally, Doctor Who magazine. And it's still publishing to this day, by the way, and it's an exceptional magazine. If you get a chance to get your hands on a copy, I highly recommend it. Now that Marvel had the Doctor Who license, or Marvel UK had the Doctor Who license, it was publishing the magazine, and Marvel was aware that the popularity of Doctor Who was growing in the United States, they decided to do sort of a tryout. And that they did that through the Marvel Premiere comic, which is a title they had been running for a long time as an anthology. And really, all they were were reprints of the old Marvel UK Doctor Who weekly strips. So it probably didn't cost Marvel all that much money to do it, other than commissioning new covers and supplemental art, I would imagine. But it was Marvel Premiere, issues 57 through 60, and these spanned from 1980 to 1981, and they were reprinting these comic strips again from Doctor Who Weekly that were about a year old at that point. And they were taking the black and white strips and putting them into color. And now they finished up in issue 60, as I mentioned, and then they only, Marvel Premiere only had one more issue. Marvel Premiere was actually canceled at issue 61. So the argument could be made that did Doctor Who in Marvel Premiere help sell the book, or didn't it? Marvel likes us to think that it was very popular. However, they didn't do anything with it, with the license in the United States for another three years. That when they finally launched a Doctor Who comic, it had been three years since Marvel Premiere ended. So you got to wonder, did Doctor Who really help boost the Marvel Premiere comic? No, leaves me with questions. Either way, yeah, it, it sounds like maybe they were just they had all this material from Doctor Who Weekly that okay, well, just let's fill up issues, let's yeah. fill up these last few issues. That's kind of where my brain's going on this. So, fast forward to October 1984, or that's the cover date. Actually, July 1984. Doctor Who number one for Marvel Comics hits the shelves. It's a direct market comic in what you could call either a glossy version or a Baxter format, whatever you want to call it. It had the, the really nice paper, and man, I was there, and I bought it off the shelf when I was a kid, and I was so excited. And it went 23 issues. It lasted all the way to August 1986. It reprinted a bunch of Fourth Doctor stories and a bunch of Fifth Doctor stories, and really, it was the only title, the only comic titled Doctor Who over here in the United States until 2008. So for that long, it was the only Doctor Who comic we had ever had over here. And then 2008, of course, is when IDW got the license, which eventually ends up with Titan, who are publishing the comics now. And by the way, uh, if you want to read some good Doctor Who comics, Titan does exceptional Doctor Who comics. I At first, I was a little hesitant when they, when they got the license because I really liked the IDW work. But man, Titan is really doing a great, great job. Definitely. By the way, I should mention, in these Marvel premieres and the Doctor Who comic itself, you know, you got new covers, uh, you got uh, backup features, letter columns things like that. So you did get some extras that you may have, uh, if you had read the original in Doctor Who Weekly, you would have got a little more information in these in these reprints, which was kind of nice. All right, well, Cisco, I think that's going to do it for the brief recap of history, and we're going to take a quick podcast promo break, play a couple of commercials for some of our friends. When we come back, we're going to talk about Marvel Premiere number 57 featuring Doctor Who in his first American comic book appearance. 
Are you a fan of Doctor Who? How about comics? If you're a fan of both, then Doctor Who Panel to Panel is for you. This podcast looks in-depth into the long history of Doctor Who comics, from the 1960s kid-friendly strips to today's present comics from Titan Comics and Doctor Who magazine. I review stories old and new, featuring classic Doctors like Tom Baker and John Pertwee, to the 12th Doctor himself, Peter Capaldi. I also interview the creators behind the stories, from authors such as Paul Carnell to artists like John Ridgway and Lee Sullivan. I also talk to production people such as Titan Comics editor Andrew James and Doctor Who magazine editor Tom Spilsbury about their career and work on these great comics. Check out Doctor Who Panel to Panel on iTunes, Facebook, and download episodes direct from DoctorWhoComics.com. Straight Out of Gallifrey is a podcast where Josh and I talk about Doctor Who episodes, classic and new, featuring other Time Lords as well as the Doctor. There are other Time Lords? Oh yes. It started all the way back with the first Doctor, William Hartnell. Oh yeah, you told me about that. The Time Meddler. That's correct, Kirsten. Where can I find the episodes? You can always go to straightoutofgallifrey.lipson.com. I don't think I'll remember that. Just add us on Twitter. We are so Gallifrey, like S-O Gallifrey. Twitter feeds move too fast. I always miss stuff. Well, subscribe to us on iTunes. That way, every time we upload a new episode, you will get the alert on your smarting device. Cool. Thanks. I can't wait to listen. Okay, Kirsten. See you later. Why are you walking into that blue box? I'm going to have a couple of drinks with Mother Teresa of Calcutta. See ya. You always say that. Whoa. It is real. So he does have drinks with Mother Teresa of Calcutta. And we're back. So, Marvel premiere number 57, this reprints the first four installments of the Tom Baker adventure from Doctor Who Weekly number one through four. Now, this comic, Marvel premiere, it had a cover date of December 1980, but it was on the shelves on September 23rd, 1980. And why is that important, Siskoid? That's right. Why? It was my eighth birthday. So. <laughs> okay. And thanks to Mike's Amazing World of Comics for that information. Now, if you want some perspective, this comic, Marvel premiere number 57, was on the shelves the same time that in the UK, they just finish airing the leisure hive from uh season okay. what is that season 18 where yeah. tom baker's starting to wrap up his era as the doctor but if you're if you want to be even more precise when the, <laughs> the, the story actually came out yep in Mar- in uh, doctor who weekly back in the uk the first chapter came on it was uh published in on 17 october 1979 so uh really it was during city of death that's correct. Well, for UK readers. You know. Now, um, the story is called Iron Legion. And, folks, this is probably the single most reprinted Doctor Who comic book story of all time. If you can't get a copy of this, you don't, you're not looking very hard. 
because <laughs> this thing was reprinted here in Marvel Premiere. It was reprinted in Doctor Who's Summer Special in 1980 and 1985. It was reprinted in a Panini graphic novel from 2004. IDW reprinted it and recolored it, which is important, by the way, and their, in their series called Doctor Who Classics from 2007. Then IDW collected this thing four times. They collected it in Doctor Who Classics, which was a trade paperback of those reprints. They collected it in the Classics Omnibus. They collected it in the Dave Gibbons Collection, which I pimped at the beginning for in-stock trades. And, most importantly, they collected it in the Doctor Who Dave Gibbons Treasury Edition, which I got weak about and ordered last night on Amazon. And that's important because I crumbled and bought it, even though I think I have four different versions of this already. So Wow. So, again, if, you, if you're looking for this and you can't find it, you're not trying hard enough, folks. Want to give a shout out to a few websites that uh, helped me do a lot of research for this project. AlteredVistas.co.uk, fantastic website that Cisco had introduced me to. Oh my gosh, what an insanely valuable resource for Doctor Who comics. Uh, also, the TARDIS.wikia.com is a great site, has a lot of information about the Iron Legion. And of course, Wikipedia was also surprisingly useful. I'm sure Cisco is going to go back and re-edit all the Wikipedia just to mess with. So. <laughs> I'd uh, never. <laughs> officially on paper, this script was by Pat Mills and John Wagner, but in the, in the following years, it's, uh, it's come out that actually was written by Pat Mills, and John Wagner wrote some later stories. Art is, of course, by Dave Gibbons, which you talked about, and the editor is Des Skin. Now, first off, let's talk about this cover. It is a cover by, well, gosh, who did this cover, Cisco? Uh, looks like a dinosaur signature, so Walt Simonson. That's right. Walt Simonson, ladies and gentlemen, did the cover art for this, and he does a lot of inside art in the next few issues as well for some of the add-on pages or supplemental pages, I should say. What do you think of this cover? That's fun. I mean, uh, it's Simonson. There's no real background. They've, they've like, added some sort of effect. Uh, it's supposed to be the vortex in yellow. It's okay. I mean, the and the TARDIS looks kind of thin, more like a slab. It does look sort of flat, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but but the the Doctor has a nice pose. the The, the scarf is uh, you know doing curly cues all around. It's, it's pleasant. It, it's not groundbreaking, but it's pleasant. Yeah. And given this is the first time any uh, American audiences saw Doctor Who in you know comic form, putting Walt Simonson on the cover is not a bad idea. Now, if you do your research and search Walt Simonson Doctor Who to find out what his connection to Doctor Who was, the first things are going to come up is a little website called Cisco's Blog at Geekery. And you're going to find out that at the, at the time Walt Simonson drew this cover and the subsequent supplemental pages, he had never seen Doctor Who, which is sort of surprising because some of his later images, uh, in fact, there's one where a Zygon is chasing him, yeah. is one of my favorite Doctor Who illustrations of all time. It's amazing. And if you want somebody to do long, flowing clothes, Walt Simonson's a way to, a guy, the guy to do it. So you're going to have a big, long you know, uh, jacket and a big, long scarf. He's your man. So, And that yellow effect in the background, by the way, can't help but notice it looks a little bit like... Uh, Who's who yellow dots? Just saying. It's that color. It's that exact color. It sure is, isn't it? <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to do the recap on this, and this is going to cover – technically, this covers uh, Iron Legion parts one through four. It's an eight-part story, and uh, the other four parts will be covered in Marvel Premiere number 58, which Siskoid and I will talk about on a future episode of this show. So let's just jump right in. Now, while Doctor Who comic strips had been around in one form or another for over 15 years, the Doctor Who weekly strips, which is where this kicked off, really started off in an, what I felt was an unexpected way. The, as I'm reading them, these feel really more like something straight out of 2000 AD than from Doctor Who. And if you've ever read any Judge Dredd or early 1980s British Invasion comics, you can probably imagine what I'm talking about. So here, here's my uh, sort of brief recap. So the TARDIS materializes in a British village in what appears to be the 1970s. Out steps the Doctor, and he's in his fourth incarnation with wild curly hair, a ridiculously long multicolored scarf, 
and he enters a general store looking to stock up on his favorite earth candy, Jelly Babies. He meets the shopkeeper, but something is wrong. The shopkeeper is acting desperate and scared, and it turns out that the village is under siege from a legion of robots, specifically robots in the image of Roman soldiers. Now, one of these robotic Roman soldiers bursts into the store and murders the old shopkeeper. When the robot focuses his attention on the doctor, it starts to malfunction. And this is because the doctor possesses two hearts, and the robot can't process two heartbeats with only one person present. The doctor takes advantage of the malfunction and removes the robot's head with the sonic screwdriver. Then, away from that scene, we're introduced to one of our villain characters, General Ironicus. He's leader of the Roman Robot Legion. Ironicus wears his metal headpiece in the shape of a screeching eagle, which later on, the doctor jokings uh, that it looks like a parrot, and once he says it, you can kind of see it. Ironicus is communing in this scene with his quote-unquote gods, and the gods find Ironicus' actions to be evil, which to them is a very good thing. It's eventually revealed that Ironicus and his Roman robotic army have arrived from a parallel dimension, one in which the Roman Empire never fell. And their technology has been advancing for centuries, and these gods have helped move them along the technological ladder, and they've conquered their galaxy. Now they're using something called a dimensional duct, and these soldiers are now able to travel to parallel worlds to continue their conquest. So, as the Doctor exits the general store, uh, he tries to make a break for the TARDIS, but it, the TARDIS itself is attacked by these robotic legionnaires. The TARDIS is knocked off course, and it goes through the dimensional duct, right towards the homeworld of the Roman robotic army. At the Roman Hype Arena, which is like their big coliseum, we were following then a TV interview. This guy, this reporter named Maximus Billius, is commentating on the Roman Sports Channel. He explains that they're waiting for the Emperor's decision to begin the games. He interviews a character named Barbarus, who's the keeper of the Monsters! And these monsters are evidently ready for a fight, especially the ecto-slime. General Ironicus arrives at the Hype Arena just before the TARDIS materializes. Unfortunately, the Doctor's arrival disrupts the entrance of the Roman Emperor. As the Doctor exits the TARDIS, he's apprehended, and it turns out the Emperor is a very young, bratty child. The Emperor arrives and declares the games to begin! And as you would expect, the Doctor ends up talking with the head honchos. In this case, it's General Ironicus, and the eagle-headed General wants the Doctor's ship to expand their conquest. He wants to take the TARDIS. But the, uh, but the Time Lord refuses, and he's thrown to the ecto-slime monster. Well, as you'd expect, the Doctor communicates with the slug-like ecto-slime, cracks some funny jokes, and he avoids sudden death. The Doctor's rewarded for his escape from death with punishment as a slave in the Imperial Air Galley. So the Doctor is forced to row uh, to keep the great airship aloft along with a bunch of other slaves. Here, the Doctor befriends the cybernetic Morris. And Morris possesses uh, this metal jawbone. He's a former gladiator. He possesses a metal jawbone as well as, as well as this enormous metal zipper that goes across his entire head. And while he's in prison, the Doctor sees the boy emperor, Adolphus Caesar, along with his mother, Juno, and he begins to suspect their true evil nature. The Doctor and Morris join forces to escape, and along the way they befriend Vesuvius, who's one of the oldest robots left in this Roman Empire. Then the Doctor discovers that the gods of Rome are actually an evil alien race called the Melavillus. Dun dun dun! And they promise next issue against the gods. So what do you think of this, the first half of this story? Uh, well, um, what did I think? Well, first of all, I've seen the black and white Doctor Who weeklies, mm-hmm. and, and I'm not sure the colors, the you know, like the early '80s coloring, uh, actually add something beneficial to the story. The the originals are quite gorgeous, and I think the colors make it m- kind of murky. I don't know if you agree. 
Completely. I mean, you guys have seen Dave Gibbons, what he's capable of. Dave Gibbons is an amazing illustrator. He's got a very fine line. It's beautiful. The coloring in this issue specifically, and we'll, when next, uh, next time we talk, we'll talk a little differently here, but the coloring in this issue, quite honestly, it's criminal. It's hor- it's, it's so bad. Everything is very, very muddy. Uh, if you compare it to the original black and art white, not only is it, uh, lots it's of heavy shadows. And well, yeah. small, it's smaller, yeah. The comic is smaller. And, and not only do they use a lot of heavy shadows, sometimes they just drop a whole black section right on top of a bunch of fine line work. Now, IDW, as I mentioned, did recolor this. So if you go looking for these, my recommendation is don't look for these original reprints. Either pick up the black and whites or get the IDW recolors because there's going to be more crisp and less muddy. Because this is this first issue especially is really upsetting to read this Marvel premiere. Yeah, but otherwise, <laughs> no, I think you're when you mentioned 2008. Uh, that's spot on. We, Pat Mills uh, and Wagner in some other in the other stories uh, are you know 2000 AD warrior um, alumni, of course, and so you get the sense that the aesthetic is m- more Judge Dredd than mm-hmm. than the Doctor Who of the era. Although that eventually seeped into actual Doctor Who, I think many of the 80s Doctor Who have that sensibility. <laughs> um, you know, the Seventh Doctor era is very much inspired by. 2080 and that kind of comic art the producer of the time as much as said so 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 it's not completely out of character for Doctor Who as a franchise, but for the fourth Doctor, it's kind of – I think there are two schools of thought. When you're looking at an adaptation, if they're going to go like this, like a full-blown alternate reality with a Roman empire filled with robots and demons, I mean, it's, it's wacky. It's all over the place. The show could not possibly have done this at the time. Today, kind of, but at the time, impossible. So is it a good adaptation, or are we finally doing the big-budget Doctor Who we just can't get on TV? So either you think it's off-model, or either you think well, you know, it's what Doctor Who should be able to do, just can't normally, and you embrace it. And, you know, it's interesting you mentioned the televised idea because I read on the Internet, so it had to be true, that supposedly Iron Legion was submitted as a television story but was rejected. Now, I couldn't find anything to back it up, so I don't know if that's a fact, but I spent a lot of time sort of trying to wrap my brain around this, and there's no way they could have done this in 1979. It's just not possible. I know I, there, there is a story where that about, you know, Pat Mills did submit a story that called like Space Whale, a Space Whale story, mm-hmm. which sort of became an 11th Doctor story eventually or kind of feels like an element okay. Doctor story. That's the only connection that I know that Pat Mills has to to Doctor Who proper. So I'm I'm not maybe it's a maybe it's like it's that story that's been confounded into another story, maybe. You know it's interesting you mention that because like the Beast Below, I or I Beast is I think that's the name of the episode. The, the Beast Below, Space yeah. Man. Yeah. There are some actual sort of two thousand AD like characters in that actually. Oh yeah. Those creepy, you know, mechanical uh, Zoltans or whatever that sit there in the tube and watch you and make rules and stuff. Those sort of fit in the line with characters like Morris and General Ironicus and Vesuvius. That because otherwise, yeah, I, I, these characters I don't think they could exist in a regular Doctor Who story. I mean, Morris, the prosthetics that would be necessary to make him look decent, especially with that giant zipper across his head, it just would have looked ridiculous. And Vesuvius. The best I can picture him looking in, in live action back then would be sort of like the flying robots from Disney's Black Hole. But given Doctor <laughs> Who's shoestring budget, it would be a lot cheaper looking. <laughs> yeah. And when I say it has a 2000 AD vibe, I, I don't actually mean the Doctor himself. 
I mean the environment he is in, the pacing of the story, things like that. I, I actually feel like they did a great job capturing Tom Baker's look. I feel yeah. like they did a great job capturing Tom Baker's voice. You know, I, I really feel like that was him. In some regards, I feel like they did a good job melding his uh, Tom Baker's doctor, his sort of antics, because, you know, he's always kind of witty and hard to predict and things like that. They, yeah. they did a good job melding his antics with the fast-paced nature of comic book action, because Doctor Who's a pretty talky show, you know, and especially back then. And that Talking and running down hallways is pretty much what it was back then. And translating that to comic book action could have been very difficult. So a lot of that worked. It's just a lot of the weird setting, the Robin Legion setting. And not to peek too far ahead, but I do sort of feel like these first four installments may have been where they were kind of trying to find their footing on what Doctor Who comics would be like for, for Doctor Who Weekly, because the second half of the Iron Legion story does sort of feel a little more traditional Doctor Who comic to me. Mm. Yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, it captures his insolence, uh, his dis- disrespect for authority. That's all in there. The Doctor is the Doctor, aside from one little weird bit that, that I want to talk about. But the the environment is right out of those other comics. With Gibbons at uh, doing pencils on this, it's... It's so confident. I mean, it, if like here in Amer- in North America, we get these comics and it's the only thing we've ever seen, let's say, mm-hmm. maybe we think this is what Doctor Who is all about. I mean, it doesn't feel like they're going off type if we don't know what Doctor Who is. It's just because we have that knowledge. Uh, but as a comic book story, an exciting comic book story about a time traveler and here a dimension traveler, it's very dense. There's a lot happening. It, it might be like this, like a sort of humorous science fiction, you know, like a crazy story. I, I believe it when I read it. So uh, they they might have been trying to find their footing, but it doesn't show as far as I mean they're doing the work they want to do. That, yes. That's that's how I feel about it because it is this is classic Pat Mills. It's the the satirical kind of universe, you know, with the the silly sportscaster. It's <laughs> I, I, all of that. I mean, it feels like you know it's not too far from martial law or something. It's, that's kind of what's floating around my head. In fact, I did a little research on martial law before this to see where it appeared originally and. And uh, I, I was thinking maybe it was a 2000 AD product, but it appeared elsewhere first. So I, I, I left it out, but I'm glad you brought it up. Because yeah. there's some of that satire in here, definitely. So it's like they're redoing the Romans <laughs> from, oh, from the Hartnell era, <laughs> sort of. It's also got late Baker era shenanigans, like with the, when the Ecto Slime, mm-hmm. that crazy monster that he defeats by knowing its language and telling it a joke because they've got a great sense of humor, that species that you wouldn't imagine. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the well-done version of Creature from the Pit. So, it's, <laughs> well, it's kind of the same idea, you know, with the, the like giant slug monster, the oh, yeah. giant we- green weather balloon, <laughs> and, and the Doctor can speak to it when everyone else thinks it's a monster. Those kinds of ideas, even though, well, even though that episode hadn't come out, actually. That's right. I was just going to uh, say that they, they were ahead of the curve here. <laughs> here's the weird little bit. It's that just before he meets, well, as he meets that ecto slime. Yeah. The idea that he starts to review his data files in his mind, it's like he's got this mind palace. Oh yeah. That's a that's something that we never really saw on TV, at least not in that era where the doctor has some kind of 
how data files I, I call them memories personally but he's going data files so it's that idea that the time lords are connected to the matrix yeah that thing that's never really said but you i mean it's said but we never feel how it actually happens on the show what's what's actually happening but it's that idea that the doctor and other time lords can access a vast store of knowledge that isn't their own it's just in the big computer on gallifrey and they've got telepathic access to it through the tardis it's happening on the page because we actually can hear or read the doctor's thoughts which we we never can on the show right yeah, well, yeah, interesting. See, I didn't read it that way. Okay. He, I mean, he's definitely saying, let's go through my memory files, and he starts naming, you know, Abdominal Snowman, Autons, Axel. I mean, he's doing an alphabetical order and everything, like he's reading out of an encyclopedia. Yeah. I just kind of took it as like someone with a uh, eidetic memory going through their thoughts methodically is kind of how I took it. But I see what you mean. It is almost sort of like he's accessing the Matrix. You're right. Hmm, because I see an ectoslime, so I yeah. go, oh, yeah, access ectoslime. My knowledge on the ectoslime, here it is. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> That's how memories work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but he's going through, you know, uh, I mean, the idea is to reference other Doctor Who monsters right. and fans. That's fun. Check them. Yep. Yeah. But uh, but really, what, what's really happening here? I've seen it on the show happen. I've seen him update his memories kind of thing. But uh, over time, there, there, there are moments where he knows what history, you know, what history is supposed to be and how history has been changed. He feels it, that kind of thing, the turn mm-hmm. of the universe stuff. Uh, and it sometimes feels like, yeah, it comes from that place where he's got access to a store of knowledge that's probably accessed access through the TARDIS, uh, has that data bank. And his knowledge isn't, you know, the narrow it down scene or, you know, there are elements like that uh, in, um, in Doctor Who. But Interesting. It's like the first time I've really, I, I you know, that it's overt. Right. And I, it's something that's a little bit out of character. It feels a bit out of character because that's never really used on the show. And that's the only bit where I felt like the, the this was like a comic book adaptation of something where it wasn't really uh, the Doctor. It was interesting. It's interesting that uh, obviously Pat Mills and all that were Doctor Who fans already. I watched um, I watched a DVD extra on this today, mm. and, but uh, Gibbons was not. Gibbons wasn't really. Doctor. He watched his Doctor was like Hartnell and, and Troughton back okay. in the sixties. He wasn't really watching it, so he was working from – but the way he works, he doesn't work from photo reference. He, he uses photo reference at first, and then he draws the living hell out of the Daleks and the, the Doctor and the canine. He draws them until he basically could draw them blindfolded. So, wow, see, that's interesting because I felt like there were a lot of panels in here, not all of them, but a lot of panels where the doctor's face looked photo reference. Like, for example, the Walt Simonson cover is definitely a photo reference. Uh, I, I recognize that fo- photo of the doctor holding the hat up like that. Right. So I thought some of these pages were photo reference, but you know what? I mean, he's such a good artist. I could buy that it wasn't. Yeah. No, I know. Some of them, like like close-ups, always feel a bit like photo reference. This is the first strip. This is like the first few weeks. So maybe he was more prone to looking at photos. But eventually, he had that down, you know, no problem. He's that kind of artist where he needs to know how the character works. Now, speaking of reference, I think these villains, the Malavillas, I think the other way around, I think they were referenced for something in uh, New Who, which, by the way, is a term for the, the series from 2005 forward, New Who. Do they look familiar to you at all? Do they? I, I don't know. I mean, I've got vague, mm, vaguely. They look like the Krillitanes from School Reunion. 
The cr- oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. Krillotains have that kind of face, yeah. Yeah, they do. And, and wings and, yeah. Exactly. So I wouldn't be surprised if the designers for the Krillotains and Score Union were fans of these old comics. Yeah, and, well, and let's, uh, and let's be, let's, let's face it, anyone who's read, doc- read Doctor Who comics or comic strips have probably read these stories at some point because these are the ones, again, that are most reprinted. And, and you know, these are the, these are the godfathers of Doctor Who Weekly strips because this kicked all of it off. Right. So, Siskoid, just let's let's step away. You know, we've kind of wrapped up the strip. I think let's yep. step away from it just a second. So, some of these characters you're a little more familiar with from another project. Why don't you tell the folks at home about that? Uh, well, we did use the Iron Legion characters in my why I say my. Uh, I'm working on a series of Doctor Who source books for the Doctor Who role playing game. Woo-hoo. Which yeah, the source books there are source books that exist for each of the Doctors uh, up to eleven. Uh, great source books, even if you're just a fan of the show. You know, the, the stats are, yeah, and the stats are secondary to all that. It just discusses each episode and how you might play them if, if you were role playing and, uh, and it's got lots of pictures and it's really nice. So we decided on the, uh, Doctor Who, uh, role playing game forums to do the same for these stories that are what I call extra canonical, that are the novels, the comics, the uh, the audios, obviously. So anything that's not part of the Doctor Who license, but it still features Doctor Who or its characters, we want to do books for. We're working on book um, five right now. Is that it? Is that true? Peter Davison. Yes, you are, that, sir. That's the one I'm working on? <laughs> we get lost. We, we do like two a year if we're lucky. It's, it's, it's slow going. The fourth Doctor book is is available as a PDF, and we did pick some of the g- better comic book stories and do those characters in uh, role-playing game form. I'll stat them out, uh, describe how they might be used in a game. We try to cover every book, every audio, and some some comic book stories. The Iron Legion, of course, scored <laughs> a place in the books because I got to use the art. You, know? <laughs> you get to use that great art in these books. They're non-profit, non-for-sale. I mean, it's... I hope it's okay with everyone. But <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and let's point out that Doctor Who role playing game is produced by Cubicle Seven. Yes, and you can buy those amazing source books, the the official ones, from you know, buy them in hardcover, or you can get them digitally through uh, various sources across the internet. And again, as Cisco is saying, these these fan produced ones, these guys spend hundreds of hours producing these things, and they're absolutely free. You can go online, you can download them, you can get them from Cisco's blog at Geekery. You can find other links to it, and they're gorgeous books. You got do a hell of a job, man. Uh, and I really, it's up to my contributors. I do the layouts, but most of the, and some of the writing, but most of the writing is by contributors and one or two contributors in particular are machines working on this. Uh, I can't take much of the credit, but uh, yeah, lovely work. <laughs> Since I, I'm not really the one that's producing the, the vast majority of texts, I can say lovely work and not call it a self-compliment. <laughs> I think they're gorgeous. And uh, I can only imagine how enormous the seventh Doctor and the eighth Doctor ones will be. We're doing it to to a piece. Yeah, (laughs) just because of the wilderness years. I mean, there's just so much content. And they're still producing new content for the seventh and eighth Doctor, so it it just keeps coming. So, awesome. Well, in the back of uh, Marvel Premiere, issue number 57, after the Iron Legion story, we get some uh, back matter. You want to tell us about that? Sure. That's pretty uh, quick. All the art is pretty much by uh, Dave Cockrum and Frank Goya. Uh, sometimes it's just signed Cockrum. Uh, you know, it's sometimes hard to tell. Uh, so these pieces and our text pieces as well. So and or just a little bit of description. So here we have uh, like on uh, the first page, we've got the 
Five Doctors by Cockerman Giacoya always. I say five because at this point there are four. Although, what, what? How can this be? But there's a fifth one that's on TV, but you know it doesn't acknowledge him. <laughs> uh, and uh, but Peter Cushing is on there, so <laughs> you get likenesses ish of Hartnell, Troughton, Pertwee Baker, and Cushing, uh, who was the movie doctor, right? The Cushing, the Cushing likeness is pretty good, actually. Yeah. Well, I think the, 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 the you know Cochran was more likely to know what Peter Cushing looked like. <laughs> so Star Wars, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so then we've got. A first class mail, which is like the Marvel premiere uh, letters page, which has a well, two pages, really almost two pages of who is the doctor? What is this? What is this show? Um, you know, for people who don't know what it is. Then the after that, we've got the TARDIS and K9, yep. uh, followed by uh, some villains here, the Daleks with Davros and, uh, and Ogron. And then the Doctor's Most Fearsome Foes, which has the Master in undead mode, uh, and it also in Roger Delgado, but in a never seen, you know, never seen in a Time Lord garb before, really, uh, that he's wearing here. Uh, Yeti, there's a small Yeti in there, the Suntaran, there's a Cyberman with a Cybermat, and a Silurian. So those are the, the those are the art pieces and text pieces that we get in the back matter. I got to tell you, uh, you know, the first page of the Five Doctors is a little sketchy. I mean, it looks comic book. Comic book appropriate, but the, the Lexus are a little bit off. But everything else is kind of amazing. I mean, his TARDIS in K9 looks spot on. His Davros, Ogron, uh, Dalek look fantastic. His Roger Delgado just looks fumingly pissed in that Time Lord garb. And the Cyberman looks totally boss. Um, and the Silurian looks like it stepped right out of the show. Now, the Centaurans, eh, a little questionable. And the Yeti is, well, the Yeti looks silly anyway in real life, but. The pages look beautiful. I thought Cockrum did an awesome job with these. I was very impressed with them. Yeah. Did you read the text piece? I did, and I have a couple of questions. Okay. It's written by Mary Jo Duffy, and she – now, first of all, I've read, I don't know, hundreds of these Who is the Doctor sort of things, and I, I don't know what it is about me. I'm such a goober. I never get tired of them. I like – I read every word. I love these types of little pieces, and uh, – I don't know. I'm just a dork for it. Um, but she, first of all, she says that people have been enjoying Doctor Who in the United States for the past two years and says that it pretty much started in 1977. I thought Doctor Who started much earlier in the States, like around 75, 74? I, I don't know. It's the States. Okay. We had it in the 60s in Canada. Oh, well, aren't you guys special? Well, uh, yeah, yeah, Commonwealth. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, the, the real thing that sort of threw me was the printing of the Doctor's real name yeah. in here. Which is D cubed, the Greek letter sigma, uh, and then X squared. What the hell is that? I have never seen that. I've seen Theta Sigma, which was supposedly his college Nick's name that we found out in Armageddon Factor, I think, with Drax. But what is this? And there's there's also a sort of calling card in uh, Remembrance of the Daleks, I think. I I have a, a replica, actually. Which still isn't that formula. Right. So this is probably from a Doctor Who annual or, you know, some reference, uh, some written reference. It, those annuals, that's true. The annuals were in a lot of people's hands and were sort of considered not canonical probably, but pretty authentic because they were, you know, the big 
Christmas gift every year. So yep. yeah, you're right. They probably someone probably put that in a comic strip somewhere. Hmm. Yeah, because I, you know, I own uh, you, you probably do as well a book called A History, uh, which is like the basically the, the the not not the Doctor's timeline because that would jump around, but the the entire history of the universe in the Doctor universe, and even that has is full of notes about uh, you know dating certain stories. And then the notes will tell you, well, this is what we approximate as the date. We the book, uh, but in this book, and this book, and this book, and this this annual, and the, you know they've got different dates going on. You know, so a lot of that information is contradictory. And whatever Mary Jo had here in her hands, maybe had that that as his real name, but it's certainly not in canon. Hmm. Interesting. Right. You know, the other thing she does is put in doubt Susan's lineage. Which I thought was, you know, she yeah. put, she puts Susan's relationship in doubt. The granddaughter, but is she really? Is she? Is is that just like? And which is which could be, you know, debatable. I suppose. Well, I I remember even when I first became a fan in 1983, and someday I, I really want to talk about our youth in in first becoming Doctor Who fans. But I remember uh, it was hotly debated whether she was genuinely his granddaughter or not. And or so I think yeah. by this point in 1980, um, when this, or 1980 when this comic came out, I think that that idea. Idea was already floating out there, like how could he have a granddaughter? The show's been on the air 15 years, and no one's ever talked about his family. You know that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we've picked it apart. We we've given it some praise. We've given it some punches to the gut. But overall, I love this comic. I'm so glad it exists. I think it's fantastic that Marvel took a chance and brought this to the United States. Yeah. I, I wish they hadn't waited three more years to do more with it, but that's okay. And uh, they did four issues total in Marvel premiere. And sooner or later, over the course of the Fire and Water podcast, I think you and I are going to get together and probably cover. All four of these, wouldn't you think? Sure. I'm, awesome. I'm up for it. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, Cisco, why don't you tell the folks at home where they can find you on the interwebs? Uh, well, I still write two articles a day on Cisco's blog of Geekery and three articles a week on the Legion of Super Bloggers. Those are easy to find with Google. And, of course, on the Fire and Water Network, I have uh, quite a number of shows. Hot <laughs> War Not, First Strike Invasion, Only Hearts Work Comics Podcast, and just recently uh, launched Give Me That Star Trek. Uh, show for it, like a mirror of Ryan's. Uh, give me, give me those Star Wars. Hell of a great intro on that show, by the way. Uh, yeah, well, you know, I got what I could. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. So, folks, if you want to hear uh, Siskoid's episodes, most of them drop on Tuesdays, which uh, those of us on the network, we call that Canada Day. Right. You can also find me here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm obviously part of the Aquaman and Firestorm show, which doesn't seem to be about Aquaman and Firestorm all the time anymore, but that's okay. We're enjoying it. You can find me on the Who's Who podcast. You can also find me on the Justice League International Bwahaha podcast. You can also find me on Twitter and Facebook under Firestorm Fan. And uh, I guess that's going to do it, folks. And until next time, fan the flame, ride the wave, and steal the TARDIS. There's no point in being grown up if you can't be childish sometimes. <laughs>